Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Well, welcome. We're at chapter 21. 2014 is the year and we're diving into learning analytics. I'm thrilled to be joined by Emery Scott and Dragan Gashevich. Welcome, my friends, to the chapter and the book club between the chapters. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having us here. Well, I do my best to bring on smarter people than I to this podcast. And you two are in the world of learning analytics a lot with your research, your work, your teaching, and your practice. So um, tell the listeners a little bit around in the world of LA or learning analytics. How did you fall into this space and what brings you here to the table? Yeah, I mean, I started doing something that we call today learning analytics about 16 years ago or something like that, 2005, when I started doing postdoc in, at Simon Fraser University in Canada. And then about 2010, uh, one day, George Simmons asked me, Dragon, why don't we run a conference on learning analytics? What's learning analytics? And then he tells me, I said, oh, yeah, I'm doing learning analytics. Why don't we run the conference? And George says, well, can we do it in two months? I'm saying to George, no, we need four more, a few more months. So, and then basically that's how we started doing learning analytics. So we hosted uh, a, the first learning analytics conference, LAK in Banff in 2011. George Simmons and I were still at the time at Basque University where Henry is now. And ever since basically I participated in different activities that are related to the Society for Learning Analytics Research. Also had a, held a chair in learning analytics at the University of Edinburgh. Now I'm with Monash University in Australia and also uh, created a new center for learning analytics uh, that is basically also based in Monash. So running a relatively growing and nice large group of people that is all focused on learning analytics. Yeah, and one of them, Solar is the first one. Do you have an acronym for your new center? Because I loved new acronyms. Oh, yeah, it is. It's called Center for Learning Analytics Research at Monash. And that at Monash was added so that we have an acronym that is meaningful. It's called COLAM. Mm. And it's an interesting thing about COLAM when it's spelled with K instead of with C. It's basically quite associated with lots of uh, uh, Sri Lankan art. Yeah. Column, basically, and it's also very mathematical. And we basically always thought, oh, this is really kind of very meaningful as well. Um, uh, acronym for our center. I love it. Talk nerdy to us, Dragon, anytime. Emery, how about yourself? Uh, what loops you into the LA world, learning analytics? A, a very, very different route. And I'm very much obviously on the practitioner side of this, or, or yeah, practitioner, even with a small P in the last little while. Um, Around about 2012, so I was at the University of Edinburgh before I was at Athabasca. Around 2012, Edinburgh jumped into some MOOCs with Coursera. That was our first toe in the water. And the end result of those MOOCs was a big lump of data and people were interested in analysing it. And I'd been doing some reading around learning analytics it kind of the course signal stuff coming out of Purdue and and some of that was in the in the kind of press I was reading, I suppose, I mean, Educause and those sorts of publications. So had a kind of concept uh, of this thing called learning analytics that was appearing on the horizon. And then, yeah, was asked to participate with a group of people in what do we do with this lump of data that came out of these first Coursera courses. Um, and that that was the sort of gateway drug into 
going going further down that rabbit hole. And I would say that rabbit hole got a lot bigger when Dragan joined us at Edinburgh. Um, and we did um, we, we did a what, what I think you once called it a kind of stress test exercise. We did a partnership with Civitas Learning to see whether their tools could be used at Edinburgh. So that was the first time we tried to join some of the data sets there together. And that that was revealing um, in terms of well, <laughs> in terms of institutional capacity, but also how much insight was actually in the data. Um, and then I, I also do work for an open source software foundation, Aperio, which isn't an acronym, but don't ask me what it means as well. <laughs> Imperial Software Foundation and so a project that um, actually another one from Australia on task which is feedback driven uh, analytics driven feedback um, got very interested in that from an implementation point of view but also from the perspective of the Open Source Software Foundation that I'm a part of and that's actually now one of the projects under our umbrella there so it's quite a mixed bag of projects and interesting people that I've intersected with and work that we've done to position learning analytics but all of that has taken me to a place where when we talk about learning analytics what are we talking about because I think it's decomposed into two different things I mean there's definitions of learning analytics but there's learning analytics as a set of products that exist in the marketplace and there's learning analytics as a research field and I feel they're very different and yes. not always that very well connected no <laughs> um, and I think that's where a lot of the challenge and a lot of the discussion around this comes in. And there's a lot of definitions about learning analytics when you poke them are about predictive analytics based on an LMS's data. And that's the very narrow conception that a lot of people have. Um, and <coughs> the worst, I'm sorry, uh, the worst definition? Yes. Um, I'm glad that you brought that up. This comes after we've already talked around massive open uh, courses, right? MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses. We've talked a little bit around personalized learning, what that means, the LMS. So this does come later. Um, a really simple diagram. I don't know how Martin packed this topic into one chapter because it's so vast. And you've hinted on it between the practitioners and researchers. The diagram of the learning analytics cycle, learners, data, metric analysis, and intervention. I wish it was that simple. And um, you two know otherwise. How else do you tell folks what learning analytics is. Um, how are you defining it, Dragon? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, we have our very formal, very detailed definition that is adopted by Solar, and that we basically kind of created when we were preparing the call for papers for the first learning analytics conference. I think uh, most of the contour, contours of that definition was basically created by late Eric Duval. Uh, by kind of being inspired by web analytics. And basically what we say is there is the kind of uh, collection, collation, uh, measurement, and analysis and reporting of uh, data about learners and context. And I think that really is often that we are forgetting. And very often we are not thinking about that context uh, in which learning occurs for the purposes of understanding and optimizing learning and environments in which learning occurs. So that's a very, very kind of uh, formal definition, but informally speaking, we basically say, well, you know what, all these creepy clicks that we are being collected, uh, collecting about you, that's what we are trying to analyze and trying to be good uh, citizens to kind of offer some benefits for the learners and for teaching staff that is involved in that uh, process. 
the other, there's really a terrific resource that Yishan Tsai, who is now a lecturer, who used to be a research fellow with the University of Edinburgh, who's a lecturer now with us at Monash University, who created a terrific video uh, introducing learn, learning analytics. It's just a three-minute uh, cartoon style of a video, which kind of tells what kind of data we are collecting and how we are trying to close that loop with the collection of the type of data. Um, obviously, kind of that thinking about learning analytics changes in terms of what kind of data we are collecting, who are our stakeholders, how we are involving our stakeholders, what principles we are following. I mean, that's really the kind of the part of my uh, life or work related to learning analytics where I had a chance to enjoy collaborating with Anne-Marie, where we worked with the University of Edinburgh to create the principles for uh, use of learning analytics which basically entailed some of the kind of ethical practices, transparency, but also some really kind of well-intended ways to promote students' agency and making sure that that is kind of really done in that way. And also involving a range of stakeholders uh, that, that are relevant. And so to me, I, I basically, before I kind of pass it on to Anne-Marie as well, is really one critical thing that I really like to emphasize, and that's how we always emphasized in learning analytics, it's a really very socio-technical discipline where the role of people and the social type of relationships as well as structures is as important, if not more important than those that are basically technical and that are coming from data science. Uh, we always basically observe if you want to have a real-life impact, if you want to have an impact on policy, if you want to have impact on students' lives, it's really essential to think about and engage into policy. And from early days, George Siemens emphasized the socio-technical perspective of learning analytics, and there was a really beautiful paper that George Siemens and Ryan Baker wrote and, and presented the, first, the second learning analytics conference in Vancouver. Um, uh, about relationships or similarities and differences between educational data mining and learning analytics. I think for many people, uh, it's still not clear what each of these two fields is emphasizing. And, and then basically going forward, some of the people and some thinkers in the field, such as uh, Leah McFadgen, um, and then Shane Dawson later emphasized basically the importance of policy, how certain policies potentially influencing bigger complex systems. And then later, later on, Shane Dawson emphasized even more emphasis on the kind of uh, uh, complexity leadership and the extent to which we actually need to kind of really grapple with the notions of leadership if we want to make a meaningful change with the introduction of learning analytics. I think that policy piece is is so important, and that I, you know, I'm not a I'm not a computer scientist. I'm a one of these useless arts graduates. <laughs> I just read books for a degree, <laughs> stories, in fact, not even books about real stuff. And um, but the the policy piece for me has become super important because it two for two reasons, maybe more than two. Putting that ethical frame around what we're doing. Um, is is important. Also thinking about the opportunities for how do you create a permissive culture in which you can do this kind of work in an operational setting? So there's the research and then there's what you might do in universities to, to, to use some of the outputs and insights of that research. How do you do that in a way that's still research informed? And then how do you do that in a way that builds 
a bigger awareness and set of digital literacies for our students as digital citizens as well. Because this is what we do with learning analytics is being done on a much larger scale or things like it are being done on a much larger scale. That, that is extent to which any of us as individuals or data subjects now is a, just a thing in the world. Um, and, and this is, for me, that's the, that's the difficulty in this policy space. How do you create a permissive environment that lets well-grounded, well-thought-out ethical stuff through, but holds back some of the worst excesses of, of things that have been productized based on little to no knowledge of, of educational theory, basically. And, and Dragan, um, some of your PhD students at Edinburgh wrote a really excellent paper analysing the claims made for self-regulated learning in student-facing dashboards and, and across a, a range of learning analytics products. And, you know, that's a good example of where you could argue that those are supporting student agency, but actually they were so poorly informed by learning theory that, that they really didn't. It was a kind of smokescreen uh, across a, a, a series of products. And, and that's where I think the tricky bit in policy often is. And that comment you made about leadership there, Dragan, how do you make those decisions? Who do you need to have around the table to make informed decisions when, when you're looking at really quite fine-grained distinctions like that and you need to have quite a depth of knowledge to, to make those decisions as well. I think it's a really complex area for policy. It's something Martin said in the chapter that is very complex. You both have said the words ethics and ethical um, and we're dealing with humanity, right? And so if we're not alongside some of these developers and designers of these systems or platforms, I wonder, um, besides the policy, when it goes into practice, what kind of choice does any sort of, um, I'll just call them end users, we say learners or instructors and faculty, do they have if they've never had input to how those are designed and created? And I, I love that you bring up, Anne-Marie, specifically around like, what are they based on? Is there evidence? And and Dragon, you can say, are the researchers talking with some of the developers in these stages? And what does that mean um, into practice? So this is a very complicated topic. Um, how would you recommend, like, I like the recommendations for defining it. Um, what do you say to others that, that are like, I really want to get into learning analytics because it's this data or this evidence or this prediction modeling? Um, what are some myths that you often have to I guess, debunk with um, either researchers and or with practitioners or educators and things like that? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one critical thing to me, I mean, with respect to myths, we can discuss some of those as well. But I, I think there are really three critical dimensions. And many people really come into learning analytics. And maybe that's one of the myths as well is anticipating potentially, but at least those who are not necessarily coming into learning analytics, but observing learning analytics from the outside. And learning analytics is about data science or data analytics primarily. And in 2017, I had a piece uh, in which we basically said that learning analytics is really not just about um, data science. It is equally so about what we know about learning and teaching. We basically said theory and also design. And that design also has uh, several dimensions there. Uh, one dimension is obviously learning slash educational slash instructional design, depending on the uh, tradition and the ideology that some uh, people may hold with respect to those design-related uh, 
traditions. And then uh, there are two other critical dimensions for design. The other one is really how you design systems. And I think what we are seeing inside of learning and it's a big push into human-centered design. And people like Simon Buckingham and Roberto Martinez Mandolado, they've been really emphasizing and promoting those. And there's really a big push also in that sense into co-design and the ways how the, the stakeholder can be involved. And we are seeing a far more advanced type of things that are happening, at least in the research space, as well as some of the projects that are happening in-house of different uh, higher education institutions. Sadly, not so much in, inside of, I think, the type of products that are available by different type of vendors. And we can talk about that kind of, I think, dichotomy almost between what Andrew also indicated what, we, what is happening inside of research and learning a lot is the field of research and even to a certain extent field of practice within higher education versus what is available in terms of learning analytics as kind of a product in the ed tech space. Uh, so th those are really critical things. And the third dimension of that design is really how we design uh, uh, studies. What is the evidence? What is the accuracy? And that's also, and Martin is talking about like, you know, correlation versus causation. And, you know, if you don't have a, a study design that can allow you for causal design, then you can crunch your data and you can basically harass it whatever way you want. Uh, you want, you are not going to get huge causal inferences, even if you are using a type of models that are allowing you for causal, for making some level of causal inferences. I think that's really, really, really essential to think about. So basically, natural, think about learning analytics is just not about data science. It is equally so about what we know about learning, teaching, and education, and design. Yeah, and when I meet vendors at conferences who explain learning styles to me and then try and sell me a data analytics product off the back of it, I want to die <laughs> or You're swear at them. Snacking is me, Ambrie's like hiding behind your hands. <laughs> physical reaction I'm forgetting yes. yes I think I did actually just use the word bullshit once when somebody <laughs> opened up that conversation but but that that for me is the you know the richness of your description there Dragan is not what comes across when we look at, at how some of the earlier systems were productized I mean course signals came out of a university it span out of a university and it span out of a set of research and and got got commercialized but a lot of other stuff has jumped on jumped on a bandwagon and on I would say very early research and every field especially in its inception years produces you know no I don't want to say bad research but like failure is a thing <laughs> some stuff happens and doesn't have the output that we want or isn't replicable or um, and that's that's the point of research right it's because that's all learning that's not a bad thing but but I think there's been a a kind of fast pipeline to market between research and and product, which I, I worry about because I think it ultimately is starting to tarnish the research field in a way that's not useful. I think there's a little bit of a pushback, I think, around concepts of learning analytics based on what what, what people are trying to sell as products, not the serious scholarly research that's being done into, into learning, into how we can improve learning. I mean, Martin's chapter references some of the work that Bart Rientes did at the Open University. And that's, that, that for me is interesting because it's, it's, um, 
it's data that informs quality assurance. So it's not about intervening with students. It's not about making predictions about students. It's about looking at how you designed a thing. Did it operate in the way you thought it would if you, you know, according to your design? And what does it tell you? Does it? And I love the myth busting piece that was in in um, in the book, the description of, you know, it reinforced that actually the design was pretty flexible, that students are not alike. And um, yeah, there, there's there's a lot more we can do with this data than just some traffic light pictures of students. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, if I could add maybe a few more points here with respect to Anne-Marie reminded me of a few other issues that are related. Yeah, and Anne-Marie is really right about core signals. It was a really early system and often you basically come across the study that was published at about core, core signals at block 2012 and uh, and then basically the critique as well that study got from Caulfield uh, about basically kind of mixing causation correlation. But I think there was, in my view, far more insightful study published by the same or similar group of authors, 2011 in Computers and Education, which looked what actually actions for signals triggered and the quality of those actions by the course uh, instructors. And basically demonstrated they just increased the frequency of some of the feedback which would say, oh, you need to work more or harder rather than truly implement any good practices that are coming from education. And that really is a critical thing that Anne-Marie, I think, is also emphasizing that you can't just go ahead with a product without thinking about what are those thinking, what are those educational practices. That's one thing. The second one is that learning analytics is never going to be a simple technological fix. I think many people and people who are coming from uh, critical studies as well in educational technologies are emphasizing that they're spot on about that. I mean, if you aren't expecting that all you need to do is to buy a learning analytics product and fix your system, you're not going to do anything. You're just going to tick a box, but you're not going to do anything. You may even just do harm. Instead, you really need to think about that holistic approach. Often I'm trying to emphasize that learning analytics means that you also need to think about organizational and other type of changes that analytics may actually entail as part of the process. There was a really nice article in Political, I think 2019, that described what was done at Georgia State University, where they, yes, they engaged with analytics, predictive models, etc., but they actually completely restructured their existing processes, organizational units, etc., to make sure that things are happening. And and, then, and maybe my last final point about some of the myths is that often basically people say the more you study, the better performance you're getting. Actually, we are often getting in our results and analysis that students who are studying the most are not the best performers. And I think that, that was one of the kind of points um, uh, Martin also made in his chapter, the more you study, the better you are going to be. Actually, it's not. It's the quality of your learning that you are exhibiting. And therefore, we need to really inform our understanding of that quality of learning with the relevant th theoretical lens. My research builds a lot on the different theoretical model of self-regulated learning because they are promoting agency, they're respecting students' judgment, how they are making these decisions, and consequently also what poor or good choices they may make based on which you can potentially also offer something which is meaningful and pedagogically justified intervention. 
This reminds me of, and I, I always thought it was earlier, and, and it was 2011, 2012. I was an academic advisor at the time. So some of the learning analytics was spinning off into like academic success, prediction, modeling, um, and they were on the path of other people, vendors coming to say, we'd like to test this in the marketplace, not be informed the other way around. So your call out to say, um, BS on the vendor uh, is because we haven't had a lot of partnerships until probably the mid, yeah, 2014, 2015 is when there was, uh, there was vendors approaching um, Civitas did, I know Titan Partners did with uh, Nakata to talk about academic advising on how can we actually scale this across and test it before we say, let's launch and prove it. Um, has there been more of that since then? Because I think as we talk about policy and evidence and putting into practice, there was never kind of like any beta testing before saying this is the thing we should use to measure the, the learners or measure student success, I guess. I, well, look, I mean, there are really many brilliant studies in learning and evidence that are coming out uh, with many of these things. Um, Unfortunately, I don't see many of these that are coming from the kind of vendors. I mean, there were some attempts and some of the organizations had some really good learning analysts that I would call like John Whitmore, but I think many of them really kind of completely uh, were disengaged or moved on with their careers, if you wish. Uh, and basically their kind of careers brought them to some other areas. I think there was some level of appetite, but I think to a certain extent, that kind of complexity of research that is required. You know, we are really in inventing the new, on some level, measurement science. And measurement science requires significant level of rigor that basically requires how you are theorizing learning, what is the evidence of that theoretical learning, and then you have to go and test that. And that is not going to happen overnight. I think it requires like, you know, at least a decade, if not more, that we actually develop some robust measures. I think there are smaller parts that can be done and that we are seeing some evidence of that. But I think what I would really like to see is more understanding on both sides that, you know, we have these imperfect measures. These imperfect measures are always to be, we just need to kind of measure also the level of the uh, error bounds, if you wish, what is the error in our measurement? And what is the level of incompleteness? That's one thing. The other critical thing as well is that people should always consider data as just a representation of reality, just a small, basically, viewpoint of that reality. And, you know, we know even from research, triangulation of different kind of research methods is really important to give you more complete picture. That's exactly what we are seeing also more in learning analysis, this kind of multi-channel type of data that are really useful, that can help us get a more complete picture. But they will always be incomplete because they are not the reality. They are just the models of reality. And I think that's really one of the kind of critical challenges that we need to kind of overcome. How we help to the relevant decision makers, both on the education end, as well as the vendor end, to understand the limitations of the models and embrace the extent to which there are some useful things that can be done. So, what I'm trying to say is data can be very useful if you basically consider it in a total way and understand also its limitations. But if you don't want to engage with that type of conversation, then you are not going to have really useful use of uh, uh, data and analytics inside of your decision-making as well as regular uh, learning and teaching processes. And that, that whole time and thoughtfulness, you know, it doesn't fit within a commercial product development cycle. 
unless a company is prepared to really seriously invest in long-term blue skies research. Uh, and I think that's maybe where some of the tensions have been, a desire to get product into the marketplace and re return on investment versus the, the complexity of what we're dealing with. Learning is messy because humans are messy. Um, and yeah, it, it's a time-consuming process. But your point, Dragan, about um, it's an incomplete picture it reminds me something else I feel a little uncomfortable with is the the extent to which um, the desire to gather data to fuel more analysis is has the potential to change behaviors as well and I'm I'm struck there's a paper Leslie Gurley wrote and you're so much better than me at remembering dates of papers <laughs> my, my, my brain is not that good but I think it, it's something like the tyranny of student participation and it it's it's a really good analysis of uh, and a bit of a pushback on kind of active learning and and students being kind of constantly engaged in group work because a lot of what what learning is about is about quiet time it's about reading it's about writing it's about thinking it's about reflection and these are solo activities by and large and these are activities which kind of defy surveillance and defy measurement in many ways the time you just spend sitting quietly thinking about something um but i do see things like ebook platforms now touting as a feature that you can see how much your students have read <laughs> tells you nothing about what they've learned so it just tells you which pages they they clicked on but I, I see that measurement um, being I, I, sold as a feature now as well and and it's starting to intrude into these kind of slightly quiet spaces and I wonder I worry about the ways in which that might change student behavior so that spending time deeply thinking about and reflecting on something becomes more of a performative exercise or students don't spend as much time on that because they're over here doing the thing that's being measured because what we measure sends a message about what matters. Um, so I, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I just worry about it. But I, I worry that the, the ed tech products are driving something now in pursuit of more data um, and and it's not necessarily healthy and it's it's not again not really well informed by the very thoughtful scholarly approach that that you have outlined yeah like students have become like little task rabbits and they just have to do the things to get the carrot which is the point which is the click which is the whatever yeah and it's it's the concept of like just because they're in there and move it around in a space doesn't mean the click log matters or this amount of three post responses are the thing because that's not what learning is, but now we're programming almost our learners to say that that's what you need to do when not all learning could be measured. I like that idea that you said around the quiet and reflection time, like in defiance surveillance. Cause that's just, that's just my jam memory. Um, but I do wonder about how we've, are we letting these systems and these processes or practices drive us this way or are we just not even questioning it anymore? Well, who's who's we? Well, I guess the we, that's a good question. Uh, 
those that are teaching in an institution is who I'm thinking about. Um, faculty and instructors um, who don't have much say in the products they use. Um, the students who sign up, undergrad, grad, continuing ed certificates, they have to sign in, sign on, and sign away a lot of these rights of all their bits and pieces going into the system, the machine. Um, yeah, and I guess the other collective we is those of us who want to make the changes are our voices strong enough? Are we doing actions in the right way to uh, subvert some of this? Um, that's always been my thought. And how is that? And how is that looking? The we, yeah. I guess, the we is small. Yeah. We had one study published. I mean, got accepted two years ago, but just finally published in Learning and Instruction, which was led, led by our recent the graduated PhD student between Shane Dawson and me, Lisa Lim, and. Um, Lisa basically showed in that study that like on task type of a feedback helped the students improve their performance, although data demonstrated that students engaged online less after the intervention. And some reviewers questioned, why is this? This is not right. And people said, well, the intervention was for students to engage less online and read the book, right? And students followed the advice. And to me, that's perfectly legitimate and we should embrace that. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, that's a perfectly legitimate, pedagogically justified uh, decision. But then that brings me to the second point. And that second point is that we actually need to mature and develop our data literacy skills, not just like, you know, we academics, we teachers, but also decision makers. I mean, how can we expect like, you know, today's, people who are in similar roles like Emory is and her counterparts in many different universities to all have similar data literacy skills as Emory may have. They don't. And I remember speaking with one of the leading learning analytics organizations several years ago, they were basically saying, yeah, I mean, there's huge interest. We can close many business deals, but we don't want to close just these business deals because often we can have really damage, uh, create a damage to different organizations. And so instead, they were basically saying how we can basically create these safe spaces for different stakeholder groups, from those who are making decisions to those who are, you know, uh, in a kind of a, a, a kind of lower power end of the uh, power structures, if you wish. Uh, they all have the comfortable way to learn, safe way to learn about some of these things. And we somehow assume that everybody knows these things, but they don't. And how do we create these opportunities? I think we need to embed it somehow these opportunities into our daily discussions, into our academic or professional developments, into our curricula in many different places. So we can't just assume that like a policymaker or a decision maker, an institution is making these decisions because they are evil or whatever, but often because they are uninformed. And how we make sure that we get informed people in that process. I think you're, you're spot on there. It's that, it's that culture of digital leadership. And I, mean, I think the last year in COVID has kind of highlighted who's invested there and who hasn't in ways that are a little bit scary at times. But it's a challenge that every institution needs to, needs to grapple with because it's not just learning analytics that can be problematic in this space. And um, I'm not, I'm not going to go off on my proctoring rant right now <laughs> you're welcome to this is what the podcast is for okay <laughs> we, can, we can do a whole hour on that if you want <laughs> I think we've got a lot to say on that one but um but yeah the, I'm glad you mentioned on task there Dragon because I think that 
So on task learning would be the website, um, Abelardo Pardo. Um, it was, again, a research project that became an open source system that is now deployed in a number of different institutions. That is a really excellent example for bucking that idea of what analytics is. Um, on task is is data-driven feedback at scale for students. So it allows you to write personalized feedback for students, you know, for class sizes where you otherwise just would not have the time to write everybody a little personalized email with with actionable advice on how to improve their their whatever it is they're doing. Um, it's a it's feedback. Um, but what I love about that one is when you talk about the algorithms in OnTask, what are the algorithms used to deliver the feedback? They are whatever the teacher codes into the system. And when I say code, it's very simple. It's very simple Boolean logic. It's if you got five on the test, you get this. If you watch the video, you get this. If you didn't do this, you, you get this. It, it's whatever is appropriate in that pedagogical context. Um, and, and the feedback is also written by the teacher. So it's a, a perfect example of a learning analytics system that does something very tangible, very real, very grounded in um, in, in learning, you know, in learning theory. I mean, it, you know, good feedback has an impact. We know that. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to do good targeted feedback at scale, therefore to have a bigger impact at scale. But it robs no teacher of agency absolutely embeds teacher agency and that's some of the pushback I hear on, on some of the other sort of products that are out there they they obscure information from teachers and you know what what's driving the red amber green I don't understand it in this case no teacher agency is absolutely inscribed into the way the system works now the trouble with it is it doesn't scale easily and I would say it doesn't scale easily I'm thinking like a university administrator now <laughs> I can't write some feedback that applies for every class I can't write some rules that applies for every class why would you do that anyway that's a kind of mad idea anyway feedback should be you know relevant to the students and the course and the context and right back to that point we made at the start dragon we think about the data but we forget about the context and on task is a perfect example of those two things together and it's very uh, accessible absolutely. <laughs> uh, absolutely no no i agree with you i mean Anne marie and you know i've been always emphasizing i even emphasized earlier today as well like about that kind of learning design context in which certain instruction or certain learning habits, right? Uh, and that, that that's so fundamental. I think to the point to, if you even think about some of these predictive models, the extent to which you can really even generalize any predictive model across many courses, because you simply have a difficulty. Some of our more recent studies are showing that basically, you know, yes, even if you have courses that have very similar, like, you know, pedagogical, overarching pedagogical philosophy, uh, Still, the learner themselves, their agency and what they know, what they convey is explaining far more variance in your data than many of these external conditions. External conditions can help and they need to be nicely tailored to match some of these things and to help the learners. But at the same time, it's the learners who really kind of are and uh, we'll hopefully have a soon that paper which basically tells that learner that learning is about the learners. I mean, if it's not about learners, then who it is about? This made me think of um, I, I'm going through some domains and as people master things, uh, they're like, 
if you give them a rubric or you have a competency matrix, or you say this is the standard, which we think about for learning, then are they ever going to go past it? No, because it's very, it's complex, it's complicated. And, and as you said earlier, Anne-Marie, it's messy. And it's, it's a lot of why would we want to have our learners just hit a certain point or code to say, you did these three things, check, 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 um, like a rubric. Um, this brings me to ungrading, which I won't get into that rant. Um, but I really think about like, you're just encouraging them to click the thing and do this versus actually what is learning and how does learning transfer to that individual? It It's going to be very individualized. It's not, it's going to be um, not the same and it's going to be contextualized and relevant to that person. <laughs> we won't be able to solve this in this one podcast episode or, or this chapter. I, I am grateful that Martin has brought up some of these ideas and issues. Are there things that you think might be missing that we can point on or draw about or things that we should call out to say this is even bigger that we should dig into further from what Martin's written about? I, I kind of want to pick up on it. It's an answer to that question, but it's also a follow on from the conversation we just had. What does learner success look like? If this is all about the learner, what's the measure of learner success? Even that's not generalizable. And that's something that, you know, I now work in an open university where credit, non-credit learning, you can do one course, you can do a whole program, you can do anything in between, you can stop, start, you can change your mind at any point all the way through as well. So what are students here for? That's a piece of data we don't have as institutions. So even our idea of what learner success looks like, what, what the outcome we might be aiming for is highly variable. Um, you know, so how, how, can, how does an open university like mine define retention? Like what even is retention in, in, in this institution? It's, it's somebody who's here for as long as they want to be here and they're reasonably happy when they go. Um, and it was, you know, it's the right time to go. So, so I think that bit about kind of what are universities for and all the different reasons why people might be at universities is kind of missing in a lot of the discussions about learning analytics. There's still, in what I read anyway, there's, there's still in some ways a kind of background sense that most people are at university for the same sort of thing. Um, they're there to get some kind of qualification. And that, that's sort of true, but is it the same qualification and is that generalizable across universities? So I think that messiness even in, what does it? What are we even trying to measure in terms of learner success is so ill-defined and learners are so absent in those measurements. And I think maybe because those measurements to date have been driven by maybe external forces or maybe, maybe you know, money inside institutions, I mean, retention costs. So that, of course, institutions focus on it. But retention is also one of these measures that gets used in leak tables or gets used in funding um, mechanisms. So it, it sort of implies that it, it drives a sense that everybody is there for the same thing. And I, I don't think we've picked that apart enough. And this is why that work on uh, that Drana mentioned, the focus on self-regulated learning. How can we use data as a form of feedback to students and how can they develop towards their goals is I think well that's that's where the value is and, and it's kind of underexplored because there are all these other pressures that swirl around um, the use of data and institutions that skew these measurements. 
No, absolutely. I, I, to me, to, that that's really kind of what Henry basically started to speak about is basically thinking about what are those core values we want learning analytics to promote and then tailoring our analytics towards that purpose. Learning analytics on its own should not have a purpose. Learning analytics should have the purpose of, you know, achieving certain either individual goals or supporting people to achieve these individual goals and or certain societal values. I mean, we live in lots of different times and uh, lots of different kind of, you know, debates where people are discussing what's the purpose of education. Is the purpose of education just to, you know, uh, train people for the work workplace? Or is the purpose of education to basically, you know, educate people to become better citizens, to become better better versions of themselves, if you wish. And I really enjoyed being in Scotland for the time because Scotland had a very clear purpose of education that is basically for the sake of education, for the sake of educating people, for the sake of creating a better society. While I'm now in a country where there is a much bigger push from at least the current government where we want to see more workforce. Whether we agree with these things, I think it will be always debate. I don't expect a clear cut, but I think we as the educators, as the institutions that we work in, school systems and so on, we have certain virtues. We want to promote certain values. We want to promote certain types of skills. I think you know it's inevitable, and Anne-Marie mentioned as well, digital skills. They are really essential for all of us. And learning analytics is perfectly suited to help us develop these digital skills. Like, you know, we are talking about fake news. Well, lots of machine learning is out there that is able also to detect fake news, that is mm-hmm. able to detect the fake, that is able to detect many of these things. How we can help people navigate some of these things. For me, I'm most passionate about two types of things, self-regulated learning and collaborative learning how we can use some of these analytics. And we always need to kind of think about, is the analytics that always small little camera behind us? Or is learning analytics is where I am having certain particular design tasks that is helping me to kind of improve and do certain things. And I think that's the realistic, more realistic type of thing that we want to see. And that is also far less intrusive and it's also in a way safer, but we need to then really think about how we are designing these environments in such a way that everybody feels included or or as, as many included as possible. I don't think we will reach in a foreseeable future, everybody's included. Uh, but let's say that's our uh, ultimate utopia we want to be in. And the other thing is how we are basically then creating products in that space and how we are evolving these products. Because we also are often kind of saying a small little thing happens bad and we are seeing like with vaccines in Europe, what is happening, we are stopping these like, you know, uh, deliveries of the vaccines based on, I think, relatively low risk tolerance and also without really seeing what is behind it and how we are avoiding that we are not attributing these type of things, but instead thinking carefully that analytics is here to serve formative purposes rather than summative and decision and replacing decision making on our behalf. I want to go to the university that you two run next. Um, <laughs> As a student, as a faculty or a staff researcher, um, I would just want to say thank you. These are some deeper questions that you're right, we haven't addressed and need to be addressed before we even get to data learning analytics. Um, so I really hope that I'm going to write them all down and study them themselves and put them out to the community of listeners. Um, I just want to thank you both for sharing kind of what what wasn't really in the chapter and just expand a little bit more. We really appreciate that. Um, and love to Martin for 
this conversation. So thank you both for coming to talk with me on the episode today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Laura. Really always love to chat with Anne-Marie and you. <laughs> so much to think about. Thank you so much for this masterclass on learning analytics. I appreciate the conversation. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.